0: All right, good morning, Faith Fellowship Church. Good morning. Find our seats and we'll get going. Welcome back to our series in Acts that we are calling the birth of the church. That is the last time that you will hear me say that. Why? Well, because after almost 10 months, we are finally at the end of the book of Acts. Seth will finish the series next week in Acts chapter 28. Today, we'll be looking at Acts chapter 7. As always, we want to remind you, 27, if you missed a message, any message of the year, you want to catch up, you can always do so by going online to www.ffcsermons.org, where you can download, listen via podcast. You just want to hear me say, welcome back to our series in Acts, you can do that as well. You can also go to www.ffcph.org, click on the live tab, and watch a previously recorded message, at least in the last year, on either Facebook or YouTube. We'll be looking in Acts chapter 27 today to see what God has for us. So let's pray as we near the end of our journey through the Acts of the Apostles. Father, we thank you for your presence with us today. We thank you that you are a God who is faithful That we see that in our own lives. We can look backwards and see that you are the same yesterday. We know today that you are the same. And Father, we have confidence that tomorrow you are the same as well. Yesterday, today, and forever. We thank you for that. We see it as we have been going through the book of Acts in the life of Peter and of Paul and of all the others that we have run through in this series. We thank you for that. We thank you for your presence with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 27 of Acts comes after chapter 26. Well, I'm glad I came to church today for that brilliant insight. I mean, the Holy Spirit's really thinking through you, Jim. Well, if you like that, it comes right before chapter 28. Everybody say, ooh, ah, I'm on a roll. Yeah. Now, what I mean by that brilliant deduction in reasoning is that all of these latter chapters of Acts are a little less theological and more historical in nature. Now, that's not to say that there isn't something that we can glean from the history. After all, the entire uh, book of Acts is the history of faith in action through the early church. It's Luke's history, written for Theophilus. It's Peter's history. It is the Spirit's history. It is Paul's history. And Paul's heart was to get to Rome to preach the gospel and then to go on into Spain. He says, I must also see Rome. Those were Paul's words during his ministry in Ephesus back in Acts chapter 19. And little did he realize all that would happen to him before he would arrive at the imperial city. Illegal arrest, Roman and Jewish trials, confinement, even shipwreck. He had long wanted to preach the gospel in Rome, and God had assured him that he would. Acts 23, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. But I don't think he planned to get there as a prisoner. Through it all, Paul trusted God's promise that he would witness in Rome, and the Lord saw him through. So let's read our chapter today. It's a long one, but like Bill said two weeks ago, Luke is going to do a better job than I ever could of trying to summarize it, so we're going to let Luke tell the story. Now the basic story is that of Paul's physical journey to Rome, and he doesn't even make it all the way there in this chapter. That doesn't happen until chapter 28. It kind of reads like a family circus cartoon. Like this one about Billy trying to get home from the bus stop. that should have taken a few minutes. He's worrying his mother to death because it took him a long time. Paul's pathway to Rome had a lot of it wasn't a direct flight. He had a lot of layovers along the way. Now to help you follow Paul's journey as I read the story, you can follow the red asterisk along the path as Paul moves along the map from Caesarea on the right toward Rome on the left. So let's read the story. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the imperial regiment. We boarded a ship from about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, "'allowed him to go to his friend as they might provide for his needs. "'From there we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus "'because the winds were against us. "'When we had sailed across the open sea off off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, "'we landed at Myra in Lycia. "'There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board.' We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving in in, uh, Sinaitis. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete opposite Salmoné. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was the day after atonement. Well, what does that mean? Well, think of it like hurricane season. In the Mediterranean, that time of year, the seas could just go crazy with the weather. So it was the beginning of their hurricane season. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. The storm. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a, a, a wind of hurricane force Called a northeaster, swept down from the island. The ship was caught by storm and could not head into wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cowda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Now, I don't know if I've ever got on a ship where I had to put ropes under it to hold it together because they were afraid. That will run aground on the sandbars of Cyratus, they lowered the sea anchor. now they were referring to the sails when they say sea anchor there, and they the ship be driven along. So we took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. How are you going to sail without tackle? When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. This is, this is my favorite part. I love this part. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, man, you should have taken my advice. And this is, I told you so, not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. I just think that's funny. I told you so, y'all wouldn't listen. Now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. The shipwreck. On the 14th night we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. When about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the ship was 100 or that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later they took soundings again and found that it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending that they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless those men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before Paul urged, just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he broke some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay and a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. They then hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the uh, the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf." The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners. This would have been their practice. To prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and keep them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. Wow, what a journey. you've got to wonder, at least I do, Why would Luke devote such a long section in his book to a description of a voyage and a shipwreck? He could have summarized that in a a few bullet points for us. But Luke was a skilled writer, inspired by God, and he knew what he was doing. For one thing, the exciting report certainly balances out the speeches that we have come across in the book of Acts and how to live in this new Christian lifestyle. It certainly brings more drama into the account. Also, Luke was an accurate historian who presented the important facts about his hero and his voyage to Rome. But Perhaps the major purpose Luke had in mind was to present Paul as a courageous leader who could take command of a difficult situation in time of great crisis. So that almost 2,000 years later, we would love and appreciate Paul all the more for what he did en route to Rome. Since ancient times, writers have pictured life as a journey or a voyage. Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan is based on that theme. So is Homer's Odyssey. We sometimes uh, use a voyage metaphor in everyday conversation, like hope you have smooth sailing or, or don't make shipwreck or try to sink. Or you either got to sink or swim. When a Christian dies, we often say that they have reached the other shore. Now, Dr. Luke was certainly not writing an allegory, but he did use this exciting event to show how one man's faith could make a big difference for him and others in the storms of life. What an encouragement to our own faith! He could have been ruined by these trials. Some folks are. You see it all the time. Something happens. Someone they love dies, maybe a a friend from high school, and and they become disenfranchised with God, and they blame God, and they, they just step away. They go off the reservation. Or they wind up like Chirpy the bird. Here's Chirpy, an adorable little bird, someone's favorite pet, a happy little bird. However, the problem began when Chirpy's owner decided to clean his cage with a vacuum cleaner. Y'all know what's coming. She removed the attachment from the end of the hose and stuck it in the cage. All was going well until the phone rang and she turned to pick it up. She barely said hello when phoom, Chirpy was gone, sucked up into the hose. The bird's owner gasped, dropped the phone, turned off the vacuum cleaner and opened the bag. There was Chirpy, still alive, but stunned. Since the bird was covered with dust and soot, she immediately grabbed him and raced to the bathroom, turning on the faucet and held Chirpy under the running water, then realized that Chirpy was soaked and shivering. She did what any compassionate bird owner would do. She reached for the hair dryer and blasted the pet with hot air. Poor Chirpy never knew what hit him. A few, days after the tra- a few days after the trauma, the reporter, who had initially written about the event, contacted Chirpy's owner to see how the bird was recovering. Well, she said, Chirpy doesn't sing much anymore. <laughs> he just sort of sits and stares and twitches. Right? Paul, Paul was ready for the storms of life, and he had more than his fair share. But the storms he faced did not deter him from action. In fact, they seemed to spur him on. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction. For the sake of his body, which is the church? Colossians. If, we do, if we're not careful with how we deal with storms, we may be left sitting and staring out into the space and twitching a lot like Chirpy the bird. Storms come to us all. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, he said, for he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust too. They come suddenly and unexpected, as seen in our story. Just then, a light wind began blowing from the south, and it looked like a perfect day for a trip. So they pulled up anchor and sailed along close to the shore. But shortly afterward, the weather changed abruptly, and a heavy wind of typhoon strength, a northeaster they called it. Caught the ship and blew it out to sea. Storms come from different directions that we don't often suspect. On land, in the sea, in the desert, in valleys in mountains. They can make our living conditions uncomfortable. Maybe they're power outages. We had three this weekend alone because of the weather. Road blockages. We had a couple of those with downed trees and lines. Maybe it's masks and social distancing that are wearing you down. How can we be prepared like Paul? How can we be perpetually anchored in a place called fair havens? Luke does not disappoint, neither does Paul. He left us some clues in this story. And I want to look briefly at those with the time that we have left. In the heat of the storm, we read that the sailors, fearing that they would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. We all face storms. Some are physical. Often storms are personal. Maybe it's death in a family or job problems. Storms are a part of life. The question is not if they will come or when they will come. They will. The question is, how will I respond to storms when they come? Paul found himself in a life-threatening storm. For 14 days, the ship was in a raging sea. When the crew packed, Paul stopped and shared the anchors that held his life secure. The four anchors that he had. They were not the only ones with four anchors. Paul gives us four anchors in the passage for surviving the storms of life. Let's take a look. Our first anchor is a relationship with God, which is all through Acts. You see it in Paul's life, certainly in this last chapter. And with that relationship comes a knowledge of God's character. We know our Father. What kept Job from turning against God when his, uh, he lost his family, his possessions, even his health? He knew his God. What kept Joseph during the years of slavery and prison for something that he was fully without blame for? He knew his God. What kept David during the years that Saul was pursuing him? He knew his God. When writing the book of 2 Timothy, the letter of 2 Timothy, Paul had been arrested by Rome a second time. The grim prospect of death was before him. The executioner's axe would soon fall, but Paul was not afraid. He wrote to Timothy, speaking of his suffering, and he says, That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him against that day. What a ringing affirmation. When you know God and you know his character, you know he will do no injustice or wrong. Job said about God in reply to the accusations of his friends, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Job 13, 15. We must come to know God personally. Do you know him? Better yet, does he know you? Just because we know the Bible or we go to church doesn't mean that we know him. We must spend time with him and get to know him. Look, the people at the IRS, they know a lot of things about you. Where you live, where you work, how many kids you have, what your salary is, your social security number, your address, your phone number, etc. But they don't know you. They wouldn't recognize you on the street if they ran into you. But your dog, who doesn't know any of those facts at all, couldn't be bothered with him. He'd recognize you on the street in a heartbeat. Why? Because he knows you. He knows your face. He knows your smell. He knows the sound of your voice. It's the same with God. Do you just know the facts about God? Or have you spent a lot of time with him? And would you know him on a busy street? And that gives us reason to trust him. Since Jesus is the Lord of all, he is the Lord of the storms of my life that come our way. He is in control and will work all of these things together for good according to his purpose, to those who love him and are called according to that purpose. So even in the storms of life, it is reasonable to trust him. Paul was in a terrible storm, but Jesus sustained him. Just because you're in a storm doesn't mean that the Lord has forsaken you. Our second anchor is that we can trust his word. It's stability in an unstable world. In times of uncertainty, you can trust God's word. It doesn't change. Because when everything else is changing, that simply does not. How could Paul be at peace? Because he had the written word of God's care. He had also received a prophetic word from an angel. Last night an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men. For I have faith, complete confidence in God that it will be exactly as it was told me. We can't change the word. But the Word can change us. Get the Word into your soul, and it will change your life. Paul wrote again to Timothy. He said, All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. William Mitchell Ramsey was a renowned archaeologist and New Testament scholar from Scotland. He was knighted by the British Crown for his work in archaeology. He was raised an atheist. And as a brilliant student at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland and Oxford University in England, he sat at the feet of theological modernists and skeptics who disbelieved the Bible. It was assumed that the Bible is not historically accurate and that it contains a large portion of mythology. It was thought that the book of Acts by him and his, and his cohorts was not written until 150 years A.D., about a century after the events it describes. When Ramsey began archaeological and historical research in Asia Minor beginning in 1881, he expected and hoped to find more evidence against the Bible. Instead, he discovered fact after fact after fact after fact that supported the Bible. He eventually concluded that the book of Acts was written during the lifetime of the apostles and that it is historically accurate. His discovery led to his conversion and defense of Christianity. When you come into contact with God's word, it changes you. Josh McDowell, the author of Evidence That Demands a Verdict and More Evidence That Demands a Verdict and many other books, was a skeptic when he entered university to pursue a law degree. There he met some Christians who challenged him to examine the evidence of the Bible and Jesus Christ. The result was his conversion and prolific defense of the gospel. When you come into direct go- into correct contact with God's word, it changes you. Our third anchor is the people of God. We are not alone. A wise man once wrote, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who fail or who falls and has no one to help them up. I always want to say pity the fool when I get to that verse. It reminds me of Mr. T. In times of trial, believers are to pray for each other and give whatever help that they can. How many of you have been encouraged by another believer? We are here to help each other through, to pray for one another, to be part of an anchor for each other. And Paul's friends were on this journey. Acts twenty three seven mentions Paul's friends in Sidon, where the ship weighed anchor, uh, was anchored for a while. No, we know of no church at Sidon, but these believers ministered to Paul's needs on the ship. Paul was not alone; he at least had his friends Luke and Aristarchus. Luke was Paul's physician. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. Our chapter says Aristarchus. Why would the centurion allow him to accompany Paul? Well, some scholars believe that Aristarchus became Paul's personal slave just in order to be able to accompany him. Talk about brotherly love. Talk about going the extra mile to help a brother out. Let God's people help you through those storms too. And our fourth point, our faith provides patience and endurance as we grow in it. Patience isn't easy. Philip Brooks, a famous pastor of the last century, was in his office one day pacing the floor, frustrated. Someone walked in, saw him, and asked, what's the matter, pastor? And he answered, I'm in a hurry and God isn't. How many of you can relate to that? I've been in a hurry and God isn't. He ain't working on my timetable. It's like, come on, God, what you doing? Now's not the time to rest. It feels that way sometimes. You need to march according to my timetable, not the way God works. The writer of the Hebrews tells us, "So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere, to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Patience is letting your motor idle when you feel like stripping the gears. Endurance helps us to struggle on. It had been two long weeks on that terrible ship, wet, cold, tossed around, constantly crammed in there with 276 people. No one felt like eating, and Paul was still hearing from God. He had endurance. Endurance must be developed. We don't automatically have it. Jesus said, blessed is the man who endures trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. It's not the ones that start the race, but those who finish who get the prize. To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me on my throne, even as I also overcame and then sat down with my father in his throne. Revelation 3, 21. Paul later said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. We must be able to say that too. Worship team, you can make your way back up. Jim happened to meet the minister on the street one day and during their conversation told him of all the trouble that he had had during the past year. He wound up with this. I'll tell you right now, preacher, it's enough to make a man lose his religion. Seems to me, Jim, the pastor told him quietly, it's enough to make a man use his religion. Did you know that the storms are some of God's best tools. And though I don't believe he causes every storm, I know that he can use every storm. When the storm hits, that's when we start thinking about what's really important. Acts uh, 2720 says, We finally gave up all hope of being saved. That's one of the, the saddest, but also one of the best verses in the Bible. It was when they finally gave up all of their own efforts that they looked only to God that an angel appeared and delivered them. They had done everything that they knew how to. They had trimmed the sails. They had dumped the cargo, cleared the decks, tied ropes around the ship to hold it together, exhausted all their efforts. It was not until they let go that God said, All right, I can come in and do what my work is for you. When I was a teenager, I took a course in in life savings. And one of the things they teach you about saving a drowning person is that when you swim out to them, the last thing you want to do is try to grab hold of them right away while they're still flailing around. You've got to swim around them and wait for them to be exhausted, where they've lost all of their strength and they're starting to go under. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? Sounds like torture. But if you try and save them while they're still fighting, they'll pull you under too and you will both drown. You have to wait for them to be exhausted, to have spent all of their strength. And then, and only then, can you safely go in and save them. Similarly, God wants you to stop in your own efforts, trying to deal with those storms of life, to surrender and say, Lord, I want you to go through this for me. I want you to walk with me as I go through this. Are you ready to let God handle your problems? Are you ready to let him take the wheel of the direction for your life? The God who knows the future, knows which direction your life needs to go. How many of you are in a storm right now? How many of you have been struggling, but you don't seem to be making any headway against your circumstances? How many have been trying to do it by yourself? Are you ready to let God step in and help? God offers today for you to trade in your sorrow, to trade in your pain, to lay it all down for the joy of the Lord. That sounds like a pretty good trade to me. And it's as simple as inviting him in, saying, Lord, I want that. I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of struggling. I'm tired of, of working my way through this, banging my head against the wall and getting nowhere. Come into my life. I confess that I have sinned. I need your forgiveness. I need you to come in so that I can rest in you. You say those words, pray that prayer, you enter into a whole new relationship where you have anchors galore surrounding you that you can lay hold of. We're going to end with a song. I'm trading my sorrows and be done for the